for technology you give us, in part to make our jobs easier, in part sometimes to make life harder, and always to remind us of our need for you, our dependence uh, on you, and our weakness, <coughs> because we just need so much help. So help us now, as we study your word, to really um, love it deeply, to see these truths vividly, to get it right, to prize ourselves on being faithful to your word, being quick to turn from error and to embrace truth, and uh, very steadfast and faithful in our stand for the truth. So as we go through the life of David now, through the book of 2 Samuel, through the Davidic covenant, um, help us just to see afresh and anew the value of your son, as no man can hold a candle to who he is. We are just too wicked and dark and depraved. So give us that insight now as we go to your text. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, a couple of things. One is, <clears throat> for Minor Prophets people, you saw today Micah, big time Davidic covenant book. Right? If you're in Minor Prophets, it was like every other word out of my mouth was Davidic covenant. DC. So if you want to read a book that really helps to test whether you understand Davidic covenant, Micah is a good book. Okay, Micah, who is like you? But <clears throat> I always end up kind of getting in trouble with the Bathsheba lecture, particularly those uh, of the female gender. They, they like to persecute me. So I, I do see the need to clarify some things, all right? And it's not just girls that persecute me. I mean, guys persecute me too, because I don't know. Everyone loves Bathsheba. I, I, I think, she, I'm sure she was really attractive. Um, but, huh? Yeah, it's just a name you don't see. Like, Bob's name, you're dying in the sheet. Yeah. I mean, and so, I mean, I'm not trying, let, let, me, let me make some clarifications here. So that we see things clearly, even though the text wants to make things fuzzy, which is the first thing we need to understand. Discordance, once again, discordance. What discordance does is the way the text is worded shows ambiguity. In fact, there's a really great article that I'm including in your OneNote file uh, discussing textual ambiguity. And he says that there, it's, just, it's just really an excellent, excellent article. Uh, and a lot of what I've already said to you is in this article. Uh, and, you know, like I told you before, like his weaknesses are rebuffed by somebody else. And, and so you just take all these good things and then you make it really good. So, <clears throat> but he, he has nailed it on the head with the nature of ambiguity in 2 Samuel 11. There is a distortion that happens in 2 Samuel, 7, or 2 Samuel 11, excuse me, and that points by its implications to something deeper that the text doesn't say upright, up front. Does that make sense to everybody? There is a discordance that distorts what's going on that makes you say, hey, there's something more going on than just meets the eye. All right? It's a technique that you kind of sometimes have in movies when you see this creepy guy and you know he's probably what? The big bad guy. But the movie doesn't have to tell you Yes, he's the big bad guy that murdered all these other people and they have to show you all the scenes where he did it. You just know, right? You just know because there's something not right 
you know, they're playing scary music, they're focusing on his really ugly face, he's wearing black, he, he looks like a bum, you know, something like that. He has this crazy look in his eyes, you know, all that kind of stuff indicates to us this guy is not right. There's something wrong with the picture. Yeah. And that's the entire point that we have here. Discordance. <clears throat> Number two, this actually brings out some depth to David's sin. And that's the angle you have to go at. Right? That's the angle you have to go at. This is not an attack on Bathsheba, per se, even if she historically was a guilty party. The attack is against David. And we'll talk about why in a little bit. But the attack has always been against David. The first depth is this kind of wordplay, I guess you could say, on king and messengers. And David, as we have said before, acts like a pagan king. Even though he should have gone out to war, he stays home, he sends, and he should be involved. And there are all these problems. And so it just reiterates the fact David is a pagan king. He's fallen out of line of what a true king ought to be. And the second depth, I guess you could say, is his lack of restraint. His lack of restraint clearly shows he's the wrong person because he does not have the power to have self-control. He's, he's laying in his bed. He can't sleep. He can't rest. So he gets up and he starts what? Pacing on the roof. And you're saying, why are you pacing on the roof? What's causing you to do this? Well, he has no restraint and he takes one look at a woman who's bathing, maybe on the rooftop, definitely from someplace visible. The text is all kind of fuzzy here to kind of indicate there's something more going on. And that's exactly what the second depth, the restraint problem illustrates. <clears throat> David must have had some kind of past. He must have had some kind of past with this woman. There must have been some kind of past interactions okay, with this woman. It couldn't have just been... He wouldn't have a temptation problem if there was what? No history. If there's no precedent that would set him up for being on the rooftop at a certain time looking at a woman at in a certain direction. He wouldn't have any tension. If you don't know something's there, you're not going to be tempted to do it. Does that make sense to everybody? And David's struggle indicates that something had to have caused the struggle. You see the effect, but you don't see the what? Cause. So you have to assume that the cause is there. There is an ambiguity caused by this discordance to point you to that. That's the second depth. In other words, David has a past. This is not an isolated moment of his life where he's just like, I can't sleep. La, da, 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 da. Oh, you know, and he just falls. It's not like that. Yeah. It's hard to say, but I guess to be on the safe side, they happen at the same time. Whether one was directly caused and motivated by the other, it's, it's too much to go for, I think. But I could very well see both of them evolving at the same time. I could very well, from a historical standpoint, look, <clears throat> Uriah is one of the mighty men, you're at a banquet for your chiefs of staff for your army 
They bring their wives. She's also the daughter of a lion whose, fa- whose father, so her grandfather, is Ahithophel, your top counselor. He's like, you know, he's, the, he's your advisor. And so, hey, I'm going to bring my granddaughter. I mean, you were probably, David was probably at Uriah's wedding. I mean, uh, I could make a strong case for that because if you draw the family tree out, okay, Eliam is buddies with Uriah because they're both mighty men. She has a, he has a daughter named Bathsheba. They know David because they're from a military connection, but also Eliam is part of a social connection because Ahithophel, his dad, is David's counselor. Do you see this? So, <clears throat> what do you think Eliam says to Uriah when they're hiding out together in the fields, running with David all around town, fleeing from Saul? Man, Uriah, you are an awesome guy. I know just the person you should marry. My daughter. Ahithophel thinks, Grandpa thinks, what? Great idea. Well, I got a connection. Since we're all connected to David, let's just get married at the palace. Duh. And who's there? David. And, and I mean, this is this is not totally unrealistic. Yeah, it is speculation. I will agree. They could have gotten married much earlier. I just don't think so because they don't have any children. See the problem? Um, and I mean, there's. And it's not because she can't conceive, obviously. Right? And it's not because they didn't think Uriah couldn't conceive with her, because what did David do? Tell him to go home, right? So, <clears throat> there's some problems here. And I bring these out, I would bring this out in a history of ancient Israel lecture, because that's the history, developing the history, reading behind the plot lines. But yeah, there's some major, major dilemmas here. They got a past. How deep is the past? I would probably, in my cynicism, say it's a lot higher. Because they're always bumping heads. And so, get rid of dad. Get rid of husband. Get rid of Joab. Send them all out. So then, you know, we can flirt a little bit. You know, something like that. They got it passed. <clears throat> they got it passed. And actually, this produces the third depth. The third depth, which is Bathsheba herself. <clears throat> there are several indicators in the text that, that Bathsheba was a willing participant in this adultery. Not only does she bathe upon the rooftop, or even if she's not on the rooftop, she bathes in a pretty visible place, contrary to Jewish custom. But on top of that, she's the one who comes. Even though David takes her, she comes. right? And she's the one who instigates to David, hey, I'm pregnant. She's the one who goes back to her home. David doesn't send her away. She goes. right? She's an independent character. It's not that David controls, David controls, David controls. It's David does this, but she does this. Do you see that? <clears throat> David doesn't give her back to the house. She just leaves. Because they're on great terms. Um, and there will be more indictments later. 
But let's be careful here. Before you have a Bathsheba bashing session, because you're like, oh, what a wicked woman, you know, she's lousy, she's a, you know, oh man, I just can't believe it, you know, she's so terrible, and all these. Before you do that, you could do that in History of Ancient Israel lecture, because you're looking at it from a different angle. But when you're looking at it from the textual camera angle, who's the target? Is it Bathsheba? No, it's who? It's David. David's the target. And what does Bathsheba's complicitness tell us about David? It wasn't just past, where they knew each other, and they, and they knew about kind of what was going on. It was a pattern. It was a deeper sin pattern. Does that make sense to everybody? It was a deeper sin pattern. It wasn't that David just knew she was doing this, and she never reciprocated, so she's kind of blind. It's what? This was something that was developing in the past. Do you see the difference between the two? One says, hey, look, David was like a stalker, right? But she was clueless. So he was feeding his own sin. The other one is, no, they were both kind of already in a quasi-relationship. So while, yes, that she was guilty, but the focus is on this. David was more than having a stalking issue. He was already having a big, what? Affair of the heart before any of this ever happened. He had a pattern. Does that make sense to everybody? The indictment is on David, not as much on Bathsheba, even though she's guilty too, if you look at it from a different camera angle position. Does this make sense? Yeah. Did you also look at it like uh, in the Garden of Eden, whenever Adam was the one to give the account for Eve's, uh, Eve's wrongdoing? So ultimately, he's like, no, no, I don't want to talk to you, but I want to talk to you. Right. So in other words, the man of the house is the one that... He's ultimately responsible. Yes, <clears throat> I think there's, there's a theological argument for that. But I think textually here, right, the concentration is, well, look, I don't need to disqualify Bathsheba. <laughs> the target is David, because he, he's the king. And I'm trying to prove he's not the guy for the job. And it's much darker than just, look at this one sin. It's, hey, look at this lifestyle. He's not the right guy. Yeah. Uh, what would people say that are adherence to higher criticism when they think 2 Samuel is basically pro-propaganda for David? Why this section is in here? Uh, they just kind of... Somebody added it later. Anti-David person added in later. You know, it's like, okay. So, that, that, that's a really small... I mean, at that point, it just becomes totally dumb. Right, in my mind. It's like, why do you account for this problem? Well, somebody just added it later. It's like, it's just basically spinning a new lie to cover your old one. Right, it's like, so, did you break the cookie jar? No, it just fell by itself. So why are your fingerprints all over it? Because somebody added my fingerprints later, you know? Like <laughs> and who was that somebody? Somebody who didn't like me, you know, like, <laughs> how did they get your fingerprints? From my hand? You know, like, they shook my hand with a piece of tape, and then they just, you know, smeared it all over. It's like, if a little kid can spin that kind of story, he's really good. But, uh, but on the other hand, it's just so clearly ridiculous. Okay, and this piece of pro-propaganda for David, 
you're going to insert this massively bad part right in the middle of it for no apparent reason and reconstruct everything in the past. And here's something that I'm going to try to help tie in, which is the big picture. The reason this narrative is so important is because we know the Davidic covenant hinges on what? One person, the what? Davidic king. That's always what it's been. And if he's the right guy, then what happens? You can fulfill the blessings. But if he's the wrong guy, it's a catastrophe. This is proving David's the wrong guy. But you, there's something that I've been trying to point out to you all along. Two things, actually, that are totally intertwined. That should, you should already be clued in why this is, why this was going to happen. What are they? One's in Deuteronomy and one's actually in First and Second Samuel. <clears throat> the law, of the law of the kings, that's the first one. It's like Wheel of Fortune, three G's, yes. And which specific one? Gals. Gals. And then what happens? What's number two? You know this. I've said it before. Well, yeah, of course David's going to die. But I'm thinking of something more. Huh? What? Hey, that's okay. Go, Kim. But, huh? Yeah, there's some... Okay, here's the question. There's something I talked about in class. Twice, at least. I mean, twice in the text. Multiple times more than that. That should already indicate to you this was going to happen. Nope. That, that's a good guess. What? Yes. The other times when he multiplied women. David has a thing for multiplying what? Women. 1 Samuel 25. 2 Samuel 3. 2 Samuel 1. You have reports of David adding wives, more and more wives. And what that demonstrates is he violates 3G inherently as king, but as a person, he has a problem restraining himself. And now we see where that brings him. Yeah. Oh, it started way before that. I didn't say it didn't start before that. I, that's the whole point of why I'm pointing out to you. This is the culmination of a sin started way before. Mm-hmm. Why would he be approved to be the king or approved to be in that position with that sin that the king was specifically told not to do? Right. And this goes back to your original question. Remember last time, which is, so God raised him up to kick him out? Yeah. Because there's a lot more here at stake. I mean, David is from the line of Judah. David does fundamentally have a heart after God's own, even if he is a sinful, wretched, bad dude. He still has that going for him. And that makes him stand out against Saul. 
And this is God's elective choice, regardless of who he is. And that's exactly it. It disregards David in the end. Does that make sense? And it's just a harsh reality. God picks him up to kick him out. I mean, even, look, does the rest of the Bible regard David as a good guy? Yes. But what it, the agenda of 2 Samuel is saying, don't cling too tight to who? To David. And this runs into a massive problem with pro, you know, the propaganda, higher critical thing is, so, okay, you insert the Bathsheba section, but it's not just the insertion of the Bathsheba section, it's the rewriting of like the book of First and Second Samuel that you have to now deal with. You have to deal with why he's multiplying wives, how that has now a negative spin because of the Bathsheba incident, how this is going to cause a total downfall of the coups that are going to follow, all these kinds of things. We'll see. By this sin, David destroys the kingdom, and it is really both not just because he personally fails, but that one sin with Bathsheba is exactly the point where God will pull the rug out of David's kingdom. You'll see it, and it's brilliant. But it's not just because this is a personal failure. It's the very mechanism, historically, that's going to obliterate David's personal ground. Does that make sense to everybody? David fails as a king because he violates three Gs. But you should have seen this coming. I try to warn you, right? Look at this. There's problems coming. There are problems coming. And now what? It's exploded. Uh huh. Um, what chapter is this guy called David? Uh, yeah, I don't know. 1 Samuel 13. Uh, yeah. So, uh huh. So, if David is already innocent, like this qualified, then how is he able to. Because of God's election. And. He was disqualified, but he had the fundamental thing that would make him work as opposed to Saul, the heart. Saul really doesn't repent. David does. That's a major, major difference. Um, But in the end, the text is trying to make it evidently clear to us that you got to get rid of this guy. He's not good enough. He's just not good enough. Um, and he, look, the text is really just trying to air David's dirty laundry big time, right? To do that. So you don't idolize David too much. You know, and in Sunday school, what do we do with the flannel graph? It's like, David, be like David. I'm like, no, 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 no. You don't want to be like David. Please don't be like David, you know. Uh, in some ways, yeah, but in other ways, Look, would you want to marry your daughter to a David? No. This guy's crazy, okay? Uh, Be very careful on how we analyze biblical characters. Are we saying we're more holy than David? No. What we are saying is, there is no one good but Christ. That's what we're saying. And the contrast should reinforce why we love him and not David. Because there's no one like him. If you look at David in his heart, he's not kidding when he says, I was born a wicked man. 
He wasn't joking. He knows that. You know, it wasn't just like, I think we have this idea of David, you know, oh, well, you know, it's kind of like when, uh, like when we say, oh, you know, I'm not that great, I'm not great. The only person who really means it is Wong, you know, and everyone else is just saying that for show. And we think David's like us, but David's like Wong. He really means that. You know, I'm worthless. I'm terrible. But Christ is actually good. And he's the first king that ever was. And he's the only king that ever will be. That's what this book is trying to demonstrate. But at first, to do that, you have to be plunged into the darkness of what David's life is. And his darkness is just like everyone's darkness because we're equally sinful. You just have to exploit it more. David's sin has been festering for years. Now it comes out into the open and it is absolutely horrendous. And it's played out with the past. It's played out with the pattern. It's played out. It's plagued with provocation against the covenant. It's everything. And now it's going to go down to a very, very low-level murder. So let's go to 11.14. 11.14. And I already covered this a little bit in an overview, but you just cannot give this text justice if you go through that. Now in the morning, because Joab didn't, or excuse me, because Uriah did not go home that night, that morning, David writes a letter to Joab. And whose hand does he put it in? Uriah. Do you understand the callousness here? You have just given this man's death warrant in his hand. But here's the irony. <clears throat> you might not see it at first. What? Okay. If John MacArthur said, hey, I got a letter for Al Mohler about you. Here you go. What are you going to be tempted to do? Open it. But Uriah never does. Uriah never opens it. Uriah doesn't even tempt. The text doesn't. The text just says it's so simple. Just hands it to him and he takes it. Why? Because Uriah was loyal to the king. He will refuse to satisfy any curiosity, it's immediately quenched because he loves the king. I swear I will never do anything against the kingdom on your life, David, and the soul of your life. That's what I am. I'm Uriah. I am loyal to the king. And so Uriah would have thought this would be a great honor that David trusted him with an official message. Remember, what does Uriah think this whole time? I'm getting a promotion. So he had written in this letter, place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle. Um, which is a very strange statement. Because right now, is there any battles happening? No, there's a siege. It's a siege. What do you do in a siege? You sit there and you wait for the city to starve so that you can just walk in and they want they are defeated so what does this mean what does this imply Joab you got to what you got to attack 
And you've got to put Uriah where? Front line. Who marches in the front line? Well, not in this day. Who marches in the front line? Who leads people into battle? The person in the front. Place Uriah front and center. Make him think he's like the king. Because Uriah thinks this is a what? Promotion. Of the fiercest battle. Make sure, make sure it's the hardest battle. Why? Because then Uriah will know, Uriah will think, not only will Uriah be guaranteed to die, but Uriah will think what? This is the highest honor. Right? Okay, when it's the hardest play of the game, what do you do? You send in your best pitchers. You, you send in your best players. Right? You send in your best players. And so Uriah says, this is the moment. This is the moment of glory. This is the moment that, 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 the, that Israel has been depending for and the king has tested me and I've come out right. And so he's making me the leader for the moment. Joab then withdraw from him so that you can kill him. He may be struck down and die. This sending, by the way, because we cannot miss the word send, is so treacherous. So treacherous. So in verse 16, Joab, as he keeps watch over the city, remember, in this scenario, everyone's buds with David, but everyone's also buds in this with who? Joab. This is his elite guard. Right? These are his friends. They've been with him every single time. They were with him in that first battle. Remember? Joab goes out with the mighty men. That's Uriah with Joab. So Joab and Uriah are friends. They're, wo- they're a tight woven group. They're like a special ops team together. That's what they are. So Joab's sitting on the city, keeping watch. And he puts Uriah at the place where he knows there are what kind of men? What kind of men? You tell me. Valiant men. Heroes. So what does Uriah think? I'm matched up with the, with the best of the best. Because David must think I'm the, I'm the best. And they instigate somehow a battle. And the men of the city went out of the city and fought against who? Joab. Why is that strange wording? What should you expect? David should be there. David's the one who ordered this battle, not Joab, right? So this is kind of strange. We would expect to be reading, they went out against David. But Joab doesn't really command this battle. That's not fair. Not unless the text is trying to say this. Joab took this what? Personally. Does that make sense? Joab took this personally. An attack on Uriah and those men was an attack on who? Joab, not David. Because David doesn't care. But Joab took it personally. And at this moment, you start to see the first 
bits of fracture crystallize. What was the progression again? First, you vindicate David as a person, personal vindication, yes? And then what happens? You show that David has a better military. And then what do you do? You show political unification as a demonstration that David is the right king. That's why he possesses the Davidic covenant. So personal epic fail. Now what happens? The military starts to splinter. We already have the seedbed. Has, has Joab officially declared, I'm breaking off from David. I'm not going to do what he says. I don't care about this crazy man anymore. No. But can you start to see where he's coming from? Joab's standing there and he goes, there's my friend. We've been through a lot. We've been running around for 17 years together. That's really how long it's been. 17 years together. I'm about to kill him. And I already know why. Because David wants his wife. I don't think Joab was dry-eyed. That's my guess. That's totally speculation. He could have been totally dry-eyed. He could have had dust in his eye. I don't know. But uh, why would David, if, if David knew that Joab knew all that stuff, why would he send a letter to Joab? Because he's crazy. And he's dumb. And he's not a what? King anymore. He's totally lost all ability to lead. Sin has warped his mind. He's like Theoden. You know, remember that guy in War of the Rings? Theoden. Yeah, he's like that guy. Before he became cool again, uh, he's in the warped stage of Theoden. He just doesn't know what he's doing. He and what, what you're going to see is, you think that's dumb? Oh, man. You, I mean, you're quite. I mean, this, this is just. I mean, I just laugh. You think this is silly? Wait till you get through the rest of the book. You're just going to be like, "Oh, David, no, you did not. Oh, what? Then you did. Oh, 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 my goodness. You're going to be like, I even know not to do that. You know, and I'm not a king. This is small, but this is just the beginning. Yeah. So the section about like sending the messenger, all the like the dialogue that he tells him to say to David is just like pointing out to David like you know what you're thinking. Wait, we haven't gotten there yet. Okay. We haven't gotten there yet. Uh, okay. Uriah's not even dead yet. They're just marching and Joab's waiting there like, I'm about to kill my best friend. I can't believe this. So the men of city fought against Joab. And the first thing the text tells you is that other men died. And Joab took that personally. David for a useless reason, killed innocent men, men that were serving him. And the top innocent man that he killed needlessly was who? Text says it. Uriah. He slaughters Uriah. And here's the idea. <clears throat> Uriah is at the head of the line of the mighty men. Here's the line of the bad guys. And they're marching this way, he's marching this way, and then Joab immediately gives the command, pull back. And first, because people are pulling back, who's the, okay, if you're all pulling back, who pulls back first? The people in the back. 
So obviously the people toward the front of the line are not able to do so, so they what? Die, because they can't last very long right? against this mighty, mighty force. Who's the last down in the order of the text? Uriah. Because Uriah didn't pull back. He tried to fight. And why? Why did he fight? I mean, this is just like the thing that just stabs you at the heart. Why did he fight? Because he thought he was promoted. promoted. And so he's thinking, this is for the king. This is for Israel. I'm going to go out in a blaze of glory. And it was the worst betrayal ever. Uh huh. Because they might have thought this is a prima... What David probably... Here's what you can do. In a siege, you still have to invade the city eventually. You just wait till they can't hold anything anymore. Right? They're just so dehydrated, frail, weak that they can't even hold a sword anymore. And you just walk in and you just take over. Or they'll surrender to you. But if you're in a hurry, you can launch a premature strike against the city gates. That's probably where they're going for. You put your strongest men at the city gates because that's the weakest point of your wall because a gate is a hole in the wall. Isn't it? I mean, that's what it is. It's just a big hole in the wall that people can come through and you have to put up something to blockade it. So you put your strongest men there because that's the weakest point. So when they see Uriah and all the men assembling about to charge the gate, they know it's time. Let's pull, up, let's pull everybody out. And let's put the strongest men in the line because this is it. This is the battle. And it's, an, it's a catastrophe for Israel. Because now, if they... if Okay, let's, let's switch to history of ancient Israel mode just for a second. If the Ammonites see that Israel just lost their attack, what are they going to have a boost of? Morale. Right? We just won. <laughs> they couldn't even break us. They weren't even close to breaking us. Well, now you just prolong the siege. Because as long as the people are strong in their mind, even if they're weakened, weakened eventually with food rations and stuff, it's going to be harder to break through. Yeah? Beyond just that, uh, the Amorites, the uh, other tribes as well, the, you know, the other pagan tribes will be like, oh, wow, they stood their ground. Maybe. Yeah, exactly. This is, a whole, this is a whole disaster on so many different levels. right? And there's something else that should be recurring in your mind a little bit here that David knows has to happen. So, but we won't go there yet. So Uriah the Hittite dies. He dies thinking he's a hero. He dies thinking the king honors him. And really it's the total opposite. That's the nature of David's sin. Joab, now what does Joab do? He he sends. You know, it's like, well, right back at you, David. And he says, okay, when you finish telling the king the message, and the king gets mad, and he starts to say these kinds of words. And anyone know the incident that's being talked about, about Abimelech and Jerubasheth and all that kind of stuff? What book does that happen in? Judges. Excellent. Who's Abimelech's daddy? Gideon. Very good. Gideon, you know, the fleece Gideon guy? Okay. At the end of Gideon's 
reign. This is what they ask him. Will you be our, anyone know? King. And Gideon says, no way. I'm not the king. But his son, Abimelech, do you know what that word means? Abimelech, my father is king. Tries to become a king. Okay? And there's a lot of funny things. Okay. I think they're funny. Probably most of you wouldn't think they're that funny. But a lot of funny things happen that prove that Abimelech is not a king. And the only thing that he really has similar to a king is that he dies the way a king dies. <laughs> That's it. And so what Joab is kind of hinting at his servant, because Joab's telling the messenger this, right? When David starts to compare us to like Abimelech, the what? Abimelech is a wannabe king. What's, David, what's Joab's kind of undercurring message? David now is like a wannabe king. When, that, when he says, starts talking about the wannabe king, because that's what he is, you tell him, your eye is dead. Joab is not a happy camper now. Right? Joab is not like, well, you know, tell David this or that or that. He's, he's upset. Your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. So the messenger goes and reports, and notice David's response. Notice David's response. <clears throat> Thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this thing displease you. For the sword devours one as well as another. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it, and so encourage him. Two weird things. First, does this message sound grieved at all? Well, you know, people die in battles. So callous. So callous. Why is David's sin terrible? Not only is it deep, he's desensitized to it. He's desensitized to it. But this is what it provokes more. What does David ask Joab to do? What does he do? This is not a true question. Just read the text. Make the attack stronger. Good, good move or bad move? Terrible move. What do you do in a siege? You wait. And obviously, they ain't broken yet, right? They ain't, they're not people who are like, I barely can hold a sword. I'm starving. Please have peace with us. They're pretty what? Strong. So you just what? Wait. But David can't do that. Why? Exactly. So he has to cover it up by slaughtering more Israelites in battle. Do you see this? Huh? Yeah. People are like, okay, so uh, that was dumb. David wouldn't make dumb mistakes like that normally. So why do you have us attack? Wait, so who died? Uriah. Oh, man. And now, when we get back home, we find out what? David married Uriah's wife, widow. Oh, 
that guy. But if you continue the attack, even if it's suicidal, no one will ever know. No one will ever know. It's not just that he's desensitized to it. Now he designs things to cover him up even more. Talk about wicked. Do you know how many more Israelites will die in these battles? I don't even know. But it's got to be a lot. Because you're going to increase the attack stronger and stronger and stronger. And by the way, um, this, this battle goes on for a long time. Because it's not till David's child dies that David goes out. So that means it has to be at least what? Nine months. Not almost a year, maybe, of more battles, of more people dying until the Ammonites finally break. But was that necessary to battle? No, you just wait it out. You just wait for a year, another year. Yeah, sure, you're sleeping on uncomfortable rocks, but at least you're what? Alive. Yeah. Because I think what it's trying to show you is two things. One, <clears throat> it's a twofold thing. It's a stage thing. And one is on the micro level, one is on the macro level. Micro level is this. Joab is reflecting upon what David just did. Joab's reflection indicates to us that at this point, David is no different than Abimelech. And the army is just like at the time of the judges. It's, we're just backwards all over again. Macro level, this is where Joab starts to say, the military is going to break from you, David. We can't do this anymore. Does that make sense? That's, that's why the dialogue is kind of like a commentary on what just happened, theologically. It's an ironic use of things to do that. Yep. And the servant's kind of uh, message to David <coughs> is held in contrast with his response. Okay, I didn't have enough time to really cover what the servant talked about in depth, but just keep this in mind. The servant is saying, this was a royal disaster, but at least your eye is dead. <laughs> so don't, don't like get too mad at us. And David's like, keep going with the disaster. It's like Dilbert, you know, it's like, oh, you know, boss, our, our project is like a million dollar shortfall and boss, um, it's going to cause world destruction. Well, good, let's pour in another billion dollars into it. You know, it's like, no, that's not what I was looking for. That's what the guy just said. You know, well, they prevailed against us and came out against the field, but we, we pressed them back into the city. So at least it wasn't a total disaster and you're dead. But when we're pressing them back in the city, you know, we got shot up by arrows because we went into the range, you know, it's like, David's like, well, good, well, just keep attacking that city some more, you know. It's like, oh, no, David, what are you doing? So this is the nature of David's sin. But there's one more, oh, uh-huh. I'm sorry, just going back to, the, like, the personal military and the political thing. Yeah. Um, is this the beginning of the military fragmentation because David is the Yeah, it's, there's bits and pieces that are starting to come together that are just working in the background. You know, just like in a movie, you, you could start to see things happen. And it's not official yet, but it's starting. It's one in the first battle that we had. Joab starts to say, hey, you got to do this for Israel. You got to do this for God. And you don't have to do this for the king. And you're starting to think, Joab, what's going on? And he's starting to break free of 
David. And now here, it's more like David gives Joab the command to do this, and now instead of them attacking David, they're attacking Joab, and so it's like as if Joab's taking this personally, I can't believe David's doing this to me, and that they're doing this to me, and so now already, and then Joab has this dialogue with the messenger, and it's like things are starting to break apart. They haven't broken apart yet, but you can start, you can see the cracks in the bond between David and Joab forming big time. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Well, the, it, wait, say your question one more time before I answer it. Um, how does them, him continuing the battle and like waiting that like nine month period um, for Bathsheba to um, give birth to the child, how does that like um, help hide the situation? Because that doesn't change the fact that there's still a child that has been born. Right, and your eyes dead. That's your questions, right? Yeah, yeah. Because the rest of the people will still see that. Right, right. Watch. Watch. Okay. (laughs) Now, when the wife of Uriah... Key there. Why does it say... What does it not say? Now, when... Bathsheba. Wife of Uriah. It's relabeling her to show you guilt. She's not Bathsheba. She's the wife of Uriah. What are you doing? Both of you heard that Uriah, her husband, which is totally tautological or pleonastic. It's like, um, yeah, well, I can give you a bunch of examples, but it's unnecessary. Was that she mourned for her husband. This is her action once again. When the time of mourning was over, David what? This is the bottom of the bottom of the sending. David sends and brings her where? To his home. And she becomes his wife. Once again, you already start to see this kind of strangeness because, okay, Bathsheba does become his wife. She She's kind of complicit in this, and she only mourns for a what? Oh, yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, um, it's interesting that Bathsheba mourns, but like in the past, David mourned for Saul and Jonathan and Abner, and like even people that he didn't really personally care for. Right. But he doesn't mourn for Uriah. Yeah. She mourns. He doesn't mourn. Great observation. And she mourns, but even that is kind of superficial. The time of mourning probably was only one month probably only one month. You can cross-reference Numbers 20-29. So one month, he brings her to his house. She becomes his wife. And what would that cover? The pregnancy. So everyone thinks this is David's child because they got married. And not only that, let me just finish this thought. David becomes a what in the people's eyes? A hero. Because he's a kinsman redeemer. What a gentleman taking Uriah's wife in 
that poor widow and elevating her to the king's household. What a terrible mess. And taking care of her and having a child with her, wow, what an honor. Because that's what the noble thing was to do, wasn't it? Unless you had killed the husband, impregnated his wife beforehand to do it. Yes, sir. Grandpa? Oh, Grandpa knows. Because Grandpa has a brain that's better than any person in the planet up to that point, basically, post-Adam. Ahithophel, it is said of him, his wisdom is like the word of God. You know what that means? Like, God's word is so true. Like, it says it, it happens. What Ahithophel says, it will happen. That's what, they, that's what the people's motto was. So does Ahithophel know? Oh, yeah. And, is a, and guess what? This tension's going to be like pretty soon. <laughs> Let me just draw it for you. Not good. Okay? Like I said, what, was, what did I say about... What, what did you have to know about a lion? Don't mess with Grandpa. Don't mess with Grandpa. Grandpa is out for David's blood. And that's going to start... Not only the military fragmentation is starting, but what else is going to start? Political unification because of Grandpa. But here's the key. Even though the people thought David was a hero, what has now happened? What has now happened? What's the last line? But the thing that David had done... See, see, it's interesting, isn't it? But the thing that David had done. I think that is an appropriate use of the uh, of the of the Vav consecutive. But I mean, okay, you don't really care about that. But the here's the point. It became evil in whose eyes? Yahweh, the true king. The true king saw through it all. All these events happen and it culminates in this. The king in heaven says, evil. And what's the next phrase of the next verse? Then then the Lord, what? Sent. I'll show you a real sending. And that's what we have next week.